You know, trying to talk about mystery, trying to talk about uncertainty, trying to talk about um, unanswered questions is not just a philosophical exercise. This has real-world consequences, and uh, the way that we're able to conduct ourselves, the way that we're able to make choices in life, the way that we're able to uh, maintain an attitude through difficult circumstances has everything to do with our ability to deal with the paradoxes in life. And I wanted to tell you about something that happened to me just last week. And uh, last Wednesday was a really bad day for me. At least it started out as a really bad day for me. And, um, you know, I wasn't as low as I've been in my life because I've been pretty low in my life. But this is one of those days where I woke up and I just didn't know how I was going to get through the day. I couldn't picture myself driving to work and doing the things that I knew I needed to do. And everything just seemed overwhelming. Everything just seemed like too much. But I got up and I got ready. I got in my car and I drove down. And I ended up at the intersection where I, if I turn right... That would be taking me, you know, into town and, and on to work. And so I sat there, ready to turn right, and then I turned left. <laughs> because a quarter mile down left from our house is the entrance to Riley Wilderness Park. And it's just 500 acres of uh, as much as you can leave to the wilderness here in South Orange County. And I knew that they had a little butterfly garden there. And I've only visited it once or twice. And so I thought, I just need to go sit in the butterfly garden. And, you know, my tires are crunching on the gravel and the dirt, and I found a place to park. And I'm going over to the butterfly garden, and I hear this squealing over there. There was a mother with about a four-year-old kid in the butterfly garden. I'm thinking, okay, that's not real conducive to what I need right now. So I turned the other direction, and I started just kind of aimlessly walking around, and I saw the far side of the parking lot, um, which is just dirt with you know, trees and meadows and all that sort of thing. There was a wooden bench there. And I thought, okay, maybe I can go sit there. And as I'm walking up to this bench, I see a little, you know, what would you call it? a little pl- emblem, a little plaque screwed into the back of the bench. And I started to read it. And when I left, I took a picture of it because I wanted to remember what it said. And it's actually in your bulletins right now, so I'm just going to read what it said. It says, In memory of our son, Gavin Shergi, born to heaven, January 3rd, 2004, forever in our hearts until we see you again. All our love, Mommy and Daddy. And I just stared at that thing for a second, you know, The pain that is implicit in those few words was just kind of rocketing off. And I was thinking about how the pain of losing a child would compel you to want to put a plaque on a bench. And then I started thinking about how do you even do that? Does the county have some sort of sponsorship program for benches? You know how your mind just goes in all different directions? So I'm thinking about that. You know, How how do you go about doing this? And, And why would they want to commemorate their son on a bench in a wilderness park? Was this one of their, their favorite places to go, um, either as a couple? And then I thought, well, with the child. But then this line, born to heaven, just caught me because I've never heard that before, born to heaven. But I have to imagine that it means that it was an infant death, either stillborn or right after birth, just born right into heaven, and it started to make sense to me. And so I figured Gavin probably not, had not made it to this bench or this spot, but his parents knew about it. forever in our hearts until we see you again, tells me that they believe in an afterlife. They believe in something where they're going to be reconnected with their son. 
with all our love, mommy and daddy. And at that point, you know, just everything really came home to me. And I remember just trying to imagine what that would be like, the state of their minds, the state of their hearts. And I, I just looked up, and I'm looking through these trees to this perfectly blue sky beyond. And the light is coming in at a steep angle, and it's lighting up those leaves the way that they kind of get backlit, you know, and they kind of glow. And there's this perfect little scene, this perfect beauty, juxtaposed, connected with this immense pain on the bench. And I just said out loud, why does it have to be this way? That was the first thing that came out. Why does it have to be this way? It was one of the most honest prayers I've prayed in a long time, I think. And it's not one that I haven't prayed before. How many times in my life have I asked? How many times in your life have you asked? Why does it have to be this way? Why does there have to be beauty and cruelty, you know, pain and joy, all mixed up together in this life of ours? Why does it have to be this way? And we keep asking these questions. I didn't have any answer, of course, so I decided to just sit down on Gavin's bench and have a prayer. And it was a centering prayer, a wordless prayer that we've talked about in here before. And I sat there and I set my clock for 20 minutes and I just said, I'm going to sit here. And it wasn't a particularly satisfying prayer. My head was just all over the place. But I sat there and then I realized I'm in direct sunlight, so it's getting hot, you know. And so that thought comes and I just try to let it go. And all these thoughts coming and let it go. But I just sat there for 20 minutes and after 20 minutes, I felt better. You know, I felt better sitting on Gavin's bench. And so I guess the question that I started asking myself and the question for us is, why did I feel better on Gavin's bench? I didn't get any answers that I was asking for. I still don't know why it has to be this way. All those questions I've been asking all my life, all the questions you've been asking, all the questions humanity has been asking since we've been painting on cave walls, still remain unanswered. And yet I felt better sitting on Gavin's bench. I remember 25, 30 years ago, pacing in my apartment by myself, asking the same questions, asking why and asking for permission to die, you know, all those things that we've done and when that pain just gets so great. And the questions are no more answered now than they were then. But I feel better. And I felt better sitting on Gavin's bench. And then I came out, and then I turned left, which was really right, and went to work and did my day, and I was able to do that. You know? And why? Why? What is it that we're doing here? What is it that actually makes us feel better? And not just better because you feel happy, better because there's a sense of, of deep-seated okayness, deep-seated contentment, a deep knowing without any proof or any evidence that somehow everything is going to be okay. In the midst of something as traumatic as losing a child, how is it going to be okay? How do we feel better again? How does food taste good again? How do you even want to breathe again? See, these are the questions that consume us as people. And these are the questions that we need to answer to our own satisfaction. Not to anybody else's and not out of some sort of book or some sort of doctrine but in a real way that makes a difference as we move through and make our choices. And so the question becomes, this faith journey that we're on, this spiritual journey that we're on, is it designed just to get us into heaven? After death, in the afterlife, salvation, however we think of that, 
Or is it somehow designed to make us feel better now, to give us a sense that something is going on now that allows us to live our lives with abandon, with abundance? Because Jesus was emphatic about this. Jesus was not about heaven of the next life. He's about living kingdom here and now. And he was always talking about that. He was always talking about liberation, set freeness here and now. So why is this so elusive for us? What are we doing wrong that makes it so difficult for us to find this basic okayness to feel better? A few weeks ago, as, as uh, Frank was saying, been talking about mystery, defending mystery, defending this sense that, uh, you know, of unknowing, of not trying to get everything just scripturally right, uh, dogmatically right, so that we feel that there's something that we can cling on to, edges that we can hold on to. For most of us, any mystery that we've come in, into contact with creates this insatiable desire to solve it. You know, you start watching the mystery movie, you just want to get to the end. You want to find out who done it. Something that happens or a problem is created in your life, you want to solve it, you want to get through it. We're always trying to finish it, as if the solving of the mystery is going to be the happiness that we seek. As if once we know enough, then we're going to be okay and we won't have these crazy questions or these problems and we won't rest until everything is solved. We're rushing through all the moments of our life to get out to that outcome, that solution, that resolution someplace in the future. That's what we're always after. The Wednesday before this, what is it about Wednesdays with me lately? Um, I was, it was the break between the Wednesday night uh, 12-step meetings and our book study that, that's later on. And I came out to the courtyard here, and there was a man sitting um, you know, on, the, uh, on the bench out here. And someone that I know who has relapsed and going through a really hard time, so I just went over and put my arm around him and I'm talking to him for a while. And then someone else comes up that I hadn't seen for a really long time, and I greeted him, and he just kind of, you know, we're just kind of getting caught up a little bit, and he blurts out that he's just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And this guy's not that old. I mean, his hair is still dark and everything. Prostate cancer. You know, it, it's just like, it just, it just kind of took me back. You know, what do you say? You know, there was nothing to say, except to just kind of ask him about details and how he's feeling and what's the prognosis and all of that. And of course, as I'm trying to have this intense conversation with him, people are coming by and waving or coming up. And, and you know, you're trying to, to juggle this kind of thing and stay present. And, and as that conversation is starting to wind down, I, I noticed that someone had come up behind him and was waiting. And so I greeted him. And he tells me that he's sorry that he wasn't with us on Sunday because he was ringing the bells for the dead at the basilica, at the mission, because his sister died. And he's just like, whoa. And then right on the heels of that conversation, another friend comes up and said that this mentor in his life, he was really feeling down, and he called his mentor, found out he had died. And it's just like, boom, 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 one, two, three. Now, they were telling me these things. I don't know if they were looking for answers. I didn't have any. You know, all I can do is be present and talk to them and, and just be focused, let them know that someone is actually listening. Were they looking for answers? Were they looking for comfort? Were they just looking for a little bit of connection? I don't really know. All I know is I just tried to stay focused with them, help them to try to deal with their loss as, as much as I possibly could. You know, it's so difficult when we encounter these things because we're looking for something to make sense. We're looking for something to connect. And sometimes it's just not there. 
So I didn't have any answers. And when we're dealing with loss, you know, we think we need these answers in order to feel whole again. You know, it's kind of that, like, that classic thing between men and women. You know, a woman expresses a problem to the man and the man goes right into, you know, engineer mode. Well, we need to do this, this, this. He wants to fix the problem, you know. And all the woman wants is an arm around her shoulder and, a, and a, you know, someone to just listen, you know, absorb the tears a little bit. Typically, men are looking to solve problems and women are looking for some kind of connection through the problem, you know. And, and it's, it's like women seem to have this wired a little better. But both of us, men and women alike, all of us alike, ultimately are going to look to our faith, ultimately are going to look to spirituality to start to answer the questions that are not being answered any other way. I mean, what else are we supposed to do? It's interesting when you think about it, we sort of have this, this understanding, this idea, or maybe it's a cultural idea, that heaven is the place of the solution of all problems, the resolution of all mystery. It's a place that when we go to it, we're going to understand it all. And that understanding is going to be our bliss. But is it really? If you understood everything, would that really be your bliss? To sit on a cloud and play a harp for the rest of eternity, understanding everything, is that really our bliss? What if heaven is not the resolution of all mystery, but the deepening of all mystery? What if heaven is the eternalizing of mystery, but mystery understood as a relationship with a person? That mystery is a person, and that we're not supposed to solve another person, we're supposed to live in relationship with that person. How would that change the way we understand all of this? How would it change the way that we live through our lives now if we realize that the mystery is not supposed to go away? It's supposed to continue in a deeper way. You say, wait, wait a minute, but Paul said, <laughs> were you thinking that, Frank? Uh, he had that look on his face. But Paul said, you know, now we see through the glass darkly, but then face to face. Well, what if the face to face part is seriously face to face? Face to face with the person. This unfathomable mystery. Take a look at these two quotes right at the top of the bulletin. One by Eugene Peterson. Mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. I love that. And the next one, which is even more on point to where I'm going here, by Richard Rohr, mystery is not something you can't know. Mystery is endless knowability. What in the heck does that mean? It means you can't exhaust the knowing. There's no bottom to this mystery. And the more we live it and the more we stay in relationship with it and the more we're willing to hold on to it as a mystery and not project ourselves out to some imagined solution, the more we know and know and know about this person of mystery. But we never are exhausting the mystery. See, I think that's heaven. And we don't have to wait for heaven for this to to be a part of our lives. It can happen right here and right now if we start to make friends with the unknowing. Start to make friends with what is going on here. I mean, this life that we've been given, it's not a problem to solve. It's not a mystery to be resolved. It's really a relationship to explore. 
if you think about it, what we're really doing here. When do you really fully know another person? You've been living with them for 20, 30 years. When do you really completely know them? If you ever really did, the relationship would probably grow static, grow cold. It's the fact that there are always new corners to turn, new things to uncover that makes the relationship alive and exciting. And I think heaven is this eternal, ongoing relationship, this, this knowing, this becoming more and more one. And Jesus is constantly trying to show us how this works, that it works right now, not heaven and the afterlife, but that kingdom is about, not about solutions and answers to questions, but it's about embracing this paradox, embracing this mystery. Look at all these quotes here, or look at, I should say, look at all these concepts here that I've listed. Jesus is always talking in paradoxical terms because there's no other language that can start to get the point across of what this is like, what it feels like. It feels so different to be in this kind of relationship than the one that we're always thinking through cognitively, logically, trying to go from premise to conclusion with non-contradiction in the middle, only one thing being true at a time. But finding is losing and losing is finding. And all of the, the scriptural citations are there if you want to look them up. And just see the context. See where Jesus is, is, is uh, where he is, who he's talking to, when he is letting these concepts out into the atmosphere. Finding is losing, and losing is finding. The poor are rich, and the rich are very poor. Blowing some minds there to his followers. Hunger is satisfaction. Satisfaction is emptiness. Weeping is bliss, and bliss is weeping. The wise and learned do not understand, mere babes do, however. Folly is wisdom, the wise are ignorant. (laughs) Weakness is strength, and strength is weakness. Exaltation comes through humility. Strength comes through weakness. Receiving comes through giving. Freedom comes through servitude. Gain comes through loss. And living comes through dying. This is how it really works. If we're really going to go through life and find out something about this Father, about this ultimate reality, you know, this higher power, power greater than ourselves, God of your understanding, if we're going to really find something, the only way we're going to do it is living like this. This is life that brings us into the quality of life that Jesus calls kingdom, the awareness, the ability to hold on to things, to see things that are disparate, things that are separate, to see the moment as it really is and not have to import something or leapfrog over it to an imagined conclusion so that we can deal with something that can't be dealt with any other way than through pure presence and experience. It can't be mentally resolved. This is what he's trying to say. And when we're hurting, what is the biggest question that we want answered? Where is God in all of this, right? How many times have I heard that? Someone coming to me, how many times have I said it? Where is God in all of this? Where do I find God in all of this? Why did I feel better on Gavin's bench? Because I found God at that moment. I found a connection that I had been losing, but not an answer to a question that I was asking, because I didn't get it that way. How then? How did I find God at that moment? And where should we be looking? Typically, we look for God in two directions, don't we? We look up there, 
You know, we call him the man upstairs. We think of heaven as up. You know, that, that terrible song by Bette Midler, God is watching from a distance. Hate that song. You know, way out there someplace in the, in the cosmos. And the other place we look is right here. Right in. Some of us have this familial relationship with God, the sense of, of God as being a friend. And so we're looking in these two directions. So we tend to see God as either transcendent or imminent. Two words, transcendent and imminent. You heard those before? Transcendent means over and above human experience, over and above the laws of physics as we know them. And imminent means working from within, immersed in and working within. So up there, right here, transcendent, imminent. These are the two ways we tend to look at God. And normally it's an either-or way. We're normally either wired for or have learned to be more up there or right here focused and centered. But is it really one or the other? I wanted to read a little bit from Brendan Manning's book, Ruthless Trust. We, this is the one we've been going through on Wednesday nights. But there's a couple of passages here that just are dealing with this spot on. And the name of the chapter is called The Infinite and the Intimate. Transcendent, imminent, right? Up there, right here. Brennan writes, Throughout the history of salvation, God has revealed his presence, but not his essence. Put that on your fridge, okay? Throughout salvation history, God has revealed his presence, but not his essence. In other words, he relates to us, he is present to us, but he doesn't explain himself. He doesn't define himself. He is just here. He is like a really good novel. You know what bad novels do? They tell you what to think. They tell you what to feel. They, they, they tell you everything that is going on so there's nothing left for you to do. What does a good novel do? Just show you what's going on and you figure it out. We report, you decide, right? God's kind of like that. He shows up. He acts. He does things in our lives. He moves through our lives, blows through our lives. doesn't explain himself. That's up to us to figure out. Since the Holy One is ultimately unknowable, we can only stutter and stammer about an omnipotent deity. All human attempts to express the inexpressible, or as philosopher Alan Watts put it, to F the ineffable. <laughs> Do you like that? Ineffable is something that you can't express. To F the ineffable. Remain woefully inadequate because of the huge quantitative and qualitative difference between our stumbling articulation and the divine reality. We can't talk about this. As a spiritual leader, I do not want to appear stupid, nor do I want to sound like a blathering boob or a wimpy wuss. Given the very real danger of both options in the face of the unknowable, prudence dictates that I avoid the issue of God's transcendence altogether. But we pay a price. We pay a price for steering clear of transcendence and unknowability. The loss of a sense of transcendence among today's believers has caused incalculable harm to Christian spirituality and to the interior life of individual Christians. The first price has been silent reverence, radical amazement, and affectionate awe at the infinite goodness of God. Those traits that are embodied in the scriptural term, fear of the Lord. And I want to submit to you, that's about the best definition of fear of the Lord that I have ever heard. Silent reverence, radical amazement, and affectionate awe. It has nothing to do with being afraid of God, in terror of God, 
It's just silent reverence, radical amazement, and affectionate awe. Adoration, which flows naturally from the aptitude to appreciate the grandeur of divine reality, is conspicuously absent in our prayer life. Quiet time is not often quiet. Our designated prayer time is generally consumed by hurried meditation on a scripture passage, a run through the Rolodex of persons to intercede or petition for, and occasional expressions of gratitude for the gifts of our lives, faith, health, family, and friends. The inner urgency to fall prostrate before the infinite rarely intrudes our consciousness. When Mary and I um, had our honeymoon, we flew up to San Francisco. And we had been in an evangelical church together for about three years before we got married. And it was so different. We were both raised Catholic. Catholic, it was so different an experience because it was in a warehouse and there was a full band on stage with a grand piano and everything was kind of in your face. I mean, there, nothing could have been more different than the Catholic experience with the high vaulted ceilings and the stained glass windows and the altar and the incense and all of that, and the candles. And we, on one day, we walked from the market district all the way down to Fisherman's Wharf, which took us through Chinatown and to this one park area at the far end of which was St. Peter and Paul's Cathedral. And so we went in just to see what was going on. And as soon as you walked into the door, this large space was kind of hovering over you. And this, this, it was dark in there and there was candles and you could smell the incense. And you could smell years of incense and candle wax and, and smoke just gathered in this space. And we walked in and Marion burst into tears. Why? Silent reverence, radical amazement, and affectionate awe. See, our church, our evangelical church, had really gone to the imminent side quite well. Jesus and God were our friends. But they had lost the transcendent part in some respects. And we had sort of moved with that. The way we were raised was all about transcendence. God was way up high and, 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 and out of reach, you know, at the top of that vaulted ceiling someplace. But walking into that cathedral brought it back again in a way that just broke Marion down. We need to put it back together again. And this is exactly what Brennan says. He says, but transcendence must be conjoined with imminence. Heaven must be balanced with earth. In other words, God's distance must be complemented by his nearness. An exclusive emphasis on the transcendent mystery of God banishes God from our world and our lives. He remains far away, aloof in his infinite majesty. He dwells in unapproachable light. The whole universe is too small to contain his immensity. We can no more catch a hurricane in a shrimp net or Niagara Falls in a coffee cup than we can grasp the infinite of God's infinity of God's reality. A one-sided focus on his otherness reduces the Holy One to a cosmic observer, a distant outsider, disengaged from the yaw and pitch of human struggle. To bring Miriam back into it, sorry honey. Years ago we were talking about how we understand God's relationship with us on a day-to-day basis. You know, we're talking about whether God is, is the master orchestrator, kind of the puppeteer who's orchestrating everything, every bit and piece of our lives, every detail. And I was telling Marion that I don't really think God works that way. I think, you know, we are responsible for all the details of our life and, and God is in charge of the big picture. And that just didn't compute with her. 
You know, that made God seem too far removed and, and not really involved. And there wasn't that intimacy and there wasn't that immediacy. And, and that, that was interesting to me because I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, to me, this kind of philosophical idea I had didn't reduce God's immediacy, but for, to, for to her, it absolutely did. And this is kind of a, you know, a polarized way that we look. You know, is, is God this transcendent figure primarily? Or is he imminent? Is he both? And this is what we're trying to do as we live this mystery, as we live this unknowing, as we move into this space. Can we bring those two things together so that each one is not diminished in the presence of the other? Both are present. And we don't try to resolve them. We move through them. Brennan writes, Imminence is not the opposite of transcendence, but it's correlative Imminence and transcendence are two sides of the same coin, two facets of the same divine reality. Transcendence means that God cannot be confined to the world, that he is never this rather than that, here rather than there. Imminence, on the other hand, means that God is wholly involved with us, that he is living in all that is as its innermost mystery, that he is living in mysterious nearness. Jesus defines this perfectly when he says, hey, the kingdom is not going to be out there someplace to be approached by observation. Look, here it is or there it is. He says the kingdom is entos in the Greek, which is within, among, and in the midst of all at the same time. It's one of those all-purpose prepositions in Greek. And when he talks about it in terms of, uh, in the Aramaic, legaumen, it means moving dynamically from inside to outside. Again, the imminence and the transcendence. It's all here. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. And disregard of God's imminence, his intimacy, deprives us of any sense of intimate belonging, while inattention to his transcendence robs God of his godliness. We're trying to get to this. And the New Testament is trying to get this across, I think, in story form. Take a look at Matthew 17. This is the story of the transfiguration. You know, one of the big passages in the New Testament. Matthew writes, six days later, six days later after what? Well, six days after they arrived at Caesarea Philippi and and did the things that they did there, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, They saw no one except Jesus himself alone. What's going on here? What's this story all about? Now, what have we done with it typically? Jesus transfigured. Jesus on the mount, shining like the sun with the cloud. We've taken this and we've moved it all the way over to the transcendent side. This is Jesus transcending. This is Jesus as divine. This is Jesus as God. But I think there's a lot more going on here. When Jesus is transfigured, he is standing with Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? 
Because Moses is the lawgiver and Elijah is understood as the greatest of the Jewish prophets. The law and the prophets. You often hear Jesus talking about the law and the prophets. That is the shorthand for the entire body of Jewish scripture. The entire body of Jewish thought. Their scripture, what we call the Old Testament, they call the Tanakh. That stands, that's T-N-K, the three letters in, in the alphabet. And it stands for the law, Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim. But the law and the prophets was a shorthand for everything. It's the shorthand for everything that it means to be Jewish, if you will. Moses and Elijah represent that. Everything that it means to be Jewish, everything that they had understood about being Jewish in their daily lives up to that point was comprised in those two figures. And now you add Jesus, the third, three, completion, the completing number. If you take the law and the prophets and you add Jesus' intimacy, you have the completion, the fullness of the understanding of the divine in human form, the connection between transcendence and intimacy. Because to the Jews, God was king of the universe. Yahweh God was huge, immense. And Jesus calls him Abba and brings him into their laps, brings them into their embrace in such a way. So here they are, the three of them. And Peter thinks he's got it all figured out, right? Good old Peter. Always jumps before he looks and speaks before he listens. I'm going to make three tabernacles for you. And then the bright cloud comes, the cloud of unknowing, the full transcendence of God. And out of this cloud, this is my son, listen to him. Now, I'm not saying that this event didn't literally happen, but what I am saying is that it is also a metaphor for all of us to live our lives in this sense of mystery, in this sense of unknowing. Because when they finally look up and they see only Jesus, only Jesus is left, everything is still there. The transcendence and the imminence, the mystery and the unknowing and the intimate relationship that they have known all these years with him. It's all now in one. And this is the way that we can live as well. We are terrified when the cloud descends and the unknowing ascends. And usually it's matched with losing your Gavin, whatever your Gavin is. When we lose that and the cloud of unknowing descends and we are terrified, can we also remember in the next breath that everything is still here, intimately, and connected with us. This is what he's trying to get across to us. When life takes our Gavin away, and it will, repeatedly, in one way, shape, or another, when the loss seems like it's just too much to bear, there are no answers for us in any way that we can understand those answers. There is only this the willingness to resubmit to life and the process of life and living with the unknowing, the willingness to go right back and get on the saddle and move forward. There's only this willingness to move into the endless knowability, as Richard Rohr says, of continuing to be in relationship with this mystery, in relationship with everything that's going on. It's an eternal becoming, more and more one, more and more connected. Why did I feel better on Gavin's bench? Had nothing to do with Gavin, really. 
You know what it really was? I turned left instead of right. That's why I ended up feeling on Gavin's bench, better on Gavin's bench, because I wouldn't have been on the bench if I didn't turn left. Turning left instead of right set a series of events and actions and decisions in motion that brought me face-to-face with Gavin's bench, brought me face-to-face with the pain of his parents and the evidence that they left behind of what they've been feeling. Always with him, they said. He's always with them. Does that mean every day they think of their child? Probably. Every day. Living with that, not having the answer, but moving forward, putting plaques on benches and doing whatever else that they have done for the last 12 years to deal with the loss of their child. That is living with the mystery. That is continuing breathing, moving back in, not being afraid to continue to be vulnerable, even though you've been so deeply hurt, to just show up, open up, and allow life to take its course in you. Not waiting for answers that give you a sense of a risk-free choice, but just making the choice anyway, unilaterally, moving into people's lives, moving into this connection. I turned left instead of right, and it led me to Gavin's bench, which gave me a moment to re-engage the mystery that I had lost in the previous days, dealing with all the details and all the things that overwhelm. I just needed time to find out that my God was still there without the answers I wanted, just the presence, not the essence. And it's always this way. It's what we choose that leads us to the encounter that we didn't even see necessarily coming. 25 years ago, I was in a mess. I was in a state. I remember driving up to Sarah Retreat And I kept going back over and over again because I could just book a room and just hang out, just walk around the grounds, kind of lurk in the back if there was a a retreat going on and listen and, and book times with the priest or do it. And this one time that I went up there, I was there, I think, for three days. And on the third night, I went for a run. I always was going for runs. And it kind of sits on a hill at the back of Malibu Canyon. And I remember running down the hill and just running through the neighborhoods. And uh, there was lots of big, mature trees. So there was kind of tree tunnels and you're walking through and you're seeing lights from all of these houses. And, just, and there came a sense of connection that was so deep in that run that I swear to you, I felt if I just turned quick enough, I would see God running with me. And as I was coming back up the hill and the, and the trees cleared out, there was a full moon and it was so bright and it was so perfect, I just burst out laughing. I've never done that before. I think they call it holy laughter. It was just, there was nothing to laugh at. It was the only reaction that I could have for this fullness that I was feeling. Why did I laugh? Why did I feel better on Gavin's bench? Because I turned left, because I turned north, went up to Sarah, because I spent three days in preparation of just being quiet, and opening myself up to something that finally showed me in a way that I just expressed it the best way I can to you. And it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But it was a knowing upon knowing that everything somehow was going to be okay. And whether you laugh hysterically, whether you have an ecstatic moment, or whether you just have the ability to turn right again and go to work and finish the day, this is how we deal with mystery. This is how we deal with loss. We bring the two together. And then when we encounter 
God on Gavin's bench, wherever that is for you, we realize this is what it means to be alive. This is what it means to be human. And at that moment, questions and answers simply fade to white. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence. And in a strange way, thank you for not giving us your essence. Thank you for not defining things or explaining things that we need to experience. Help us to understand the need for our direct experience of these things so that we can start to let go of the stranglehold that our brains and our minds have on this relationship with you and with each other. Life is hard sometimes. Life beats us down. We need new wind. We need a new infilling. Help us to find it. Help us to turn left instead of right. Whatever that means, try something different. Go places we haven't gone before. Connect in ways that maybe we've forgotten we used to do naturally. And find you on Gavin's bench somehow, some way. You are always there. You precede us wherever we go. We just want to connect. We want to connect more and more concretely so that we know that we know that all this is okay. It's going to be all right. And you'll never leave or forsake us. Father, again, thank you for everything that you give us and the love that you give us. Help us never to forget we only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.